black truth, all black everything. We don't just ride the wave, we all black every day. Day, day, we all black every day. Before we talk a little bit about Queen Nzinga, let me give you a little bit of backstory of kind of really what was going on during this time period when she's getting ready to come into power. The main aim of the Portuguese in Africa was not at first the conquest of the black people there. Their main aim was to destroy the Arab powers and the Islamic control over the land trade routes leading to the east. At this point in time, there wasn't really any Christian states left in Africa. Majority of the African states were completely dominated by Arab and Islamic powers. But the Portuguese heard a Christian state that had escaped Muslim destruction and was located somewhere in the southeastern border of the Ethiopian Empire was known as the Kingdom of Axum, or the kingdom ruled by a king named Preston John. Whatever the case may be, the Portuguese sought to go to this Christian state kingdom. However, they was a little bit too late in reaching this kingdom. So therefore, they began on working on the idea of creating a black Christian kingdom in their own image. And this kingdom was Congo. Now, from my understanding of Congo, Congo already had a king. And his name was Nzinga A. Nakul. And he would be considered the first Christian king of Congo. And his son, Nzinga Mbemba, or known by his baptized name, King Alfonso, would rule after his death and respectively extend Congo's relations with Portugal in 1592 by signing an agreement called the Regimento with Manuel I of Portugal. Now, in this agreement, Congo would accept Portuguese institutions, grant extra territorial rights to Portuguese subjects, and supply slaves to Portuguese traders and firmly establish a Roman Catholic church in the Congo. However, in 1526, after discovering that Portuguese merchants were purchasing illegal enslaved persons and exporting them, Alfonso tried to establish an administrative system to overthrow the slave trade which reached considerable heights during his reign as king. He sought unsuccessfully to restrict Portuguese activities in his kingdom. The Congolese king, Alfonso, found himself basically in the middle of a political firefight from several directions. As the king of Portugal declared a royal monopoly over the slave trade in the Congos, understand that a lot of these great nations of Africa were not necessarily destroyed from outside forces, but they were always destroyed from the inside. And what I mean from the inside, I mean, basically, a lot of European groups were spread out over the country into various 
provinces with gifts of goodwill and getting themselves attached to the courts of local chiefs as friendly advisors that were going to guarantee the security of the chiefs and their people and even extend the power over other people, all of which meant great riches for the chiefs. As the slave raids spread throughout the Congos and Angola, the blacks continued to flee overland and up the rivers towards central and southern areas of the Great Savannah regions and the lakes. For every two million black people they enslaved, over a million died. A lot of them died from suicides. Majority of them died from poisoning, which a lot of the women would conceal on their bodies and carry while they were chained and shackled and would pass on this poison to friends, family, sometimes even kids before taking it themselves in the middle of the night. Many babies were deliberately smothered to death by their dying mothers. Then there were instances where some of the most healthiest black people that were captured would just drop dead without any apparent cause. Maybe they died out of sheer spite. Maybe it was out of fear. Who knows? Whatever the case may be, this particularly slowed down the slave trader routes of getting back to the ship significantly. And while the Congolese kings were harassing Portugal in their attempts to stop the spread of the slave trade, the real danger that they really faced was in the Angola region, the region known as Black Terror in the form of a death-defying queen named Anne Nzinga. To a lot of people, Anne Nzinga is one of the greatest women generals and military strategists that may have ever lived that confronted the armed forces of Portugal. Her tactics kept commanders confused and dismayed. She had a system of infiltrating the Portugal black troops with her own men, causing whole companies to rebel, desert, and join her armies in what she called a war of liberation. Her aim was simply the total destruction of the slave trade. In 1575, Angola became a colony of Portugal by a royal decree only. The Portuguese created the conditions that brought Queen Zinger to the fore. They were so aggressive in their programming of dividing the blacks and keeping them fighting among themselves that they simply went too far. But after 1608, Commander-in-Chief of the Portuguese Army, Bento Cardoso, took it a step further. Under his plan, Angola was to be further depopulated by a massive onslaught for slaves through a closely coordinated system in which every chief in the land would be owned by a Portuguese and directly responsible to him for a stated quota of slaves. This would bypass the Angolan king of Ndongo, to whom the provincial chiefs paid their taxes and slaves. 
This will also increase warfare between the chiefdoms in order to meet the increased quotas demanded by raiding into each other's territories. Chiefs who fail to secure the required number of slaves would themselves be enslaved. To make matters worse, the Jaga warriors, known for looting and raping, became allies of Cardoso. The Angolan king, who had been cooperating with the slave traders, now saw himself being ruined on all fronts, losing his people and his profits. He begins to resist the Portuguese. The people, knowing that their king himself was a slaver, in sheer desperation, flocked to support the war of resistance led by the king's sister, Nzinga, who had opposed him for engaging in the slave trade. And it paid off. Both the Portuguese and the Jaga allies were checked, and the war dragged on year after year. After the capital city, Cambasa, fell to the Portuguese, their losses had become so heavy that the new governor, who had been sent from Lisbon with firm order to complete conquests of Angola, one and for all, nevertheless was forced to sue for peace without victory. The Portuguese had suffered a disastrous defeat by the blacks, but the official version was that there was a general illness in their ranks. Still, the Portuguese insisted on holding Cabasa. The Africans rejected peace proposals as a trick, and the war was resumed in a land of famine where food crops and the slave trade itself had came to a standstill. Somehow, in this desperate state of affairs, the fighting continued with both sides weakened and in despair. During this time, in 1619, a new Portuguese commander murdered over a hundred chiefs. At this point, the Pope intervened, insisting that the wholesale slaughter be ended and people be pursued. In 1622, a new governor was sent from Lisbon to make peace. Portugal had been appointing governors of Angola for over 40 years without having control over it. The peace conference was held at Luanda. The black delegation was headed by the country's ablest and most uncompromising diplomat, Anne Nzinga, not yet queen, but sister of the king, the woman power behind a weak king, and the one responsible for inspiring the people to continue the war resistance when every hope was gone, unless she herself had become their last hope. Before the peace conference began, the arrogant governor could not be restrained. He decided to insult the princess by providing chairs for himself and for the men counselors with the idea of forcing the black princess to stand humbly before his noble presence. He remained seated, staring haughtily as she entered the room. She took in the situation at a glance with a contemptuous smile, while her attendants moved with a swiftness that seemed to suggest that they had already anticipated that this stupid behavior would happen with the Portuguese. Her attendants quickly rolled out the beautifully designed royal carpet they had brought before Nzinga, after which 
one of them went down on all fours and expertly formed himself into a royal throne upon which the princess sat easily without being a strain on her devoted follower. Yet she rose at regular intervals, knowing that other attendants were vying for the honor of thus giving to these whites still another defeat. Some people will listen and look at it as a cruel and inhumane use of slaves, ignoring the fact that Nzinga's chief claim to fame was that she was the greatest abolitionist of slavery, that she had no slaves and indeed had not the slightest need for any. One reason might be that she was so much loved and even blindly followed by her people that it was believed that all would die to the last man and woman following her leadership. Such were the men, not slaves, who gladly formed a human couch before the astonished and horrified Portuguese for their leader. She faced the Portuguese attendants and spoke as a ruler of the land and not as a subject of the king of Portugal. She did not recognize the man in the big chair as a governor because she did not recognize the existence of a Portuguese colony of Angola. She only saw before her what people had seen approaching their shores over a hundred years before. Pompous white devils bent on the destruction of the non-white world. The Ndongo terms for peace were presented as uncompromising demands, making it clear from the beginning that the Portuguese would have fared better with a man. Before Nzinga signed any kind of peace treaty, Portugal had to agree to a few of her demands. One, to evacuate Cabasa and all nearby fortifications. Two, the Portuguese were to wage war against the Jaga, a harsh provision since the Jaga had been Portugal's allies in trying to crush Ndongo. Three, all chiefs who had become vassals of the Portuguese king were to be freed and enabled to return to former tributary status at home. And finally, the important concession the Zynga made was to return the Portuguese prisoners of war she held. The Treaty of 1622 was supposed to end all fighting in the whole West Central region. But the governor, as though to make up for his defeat in the peace negotiations with Nzinga, marched off almost immediately to invade Congo again. The treaty then became dead. The next year, Nzinga's brother died and she became Queen of Ndongo. The distressed Portuguese to discredit Queen Nzinga put out the story that she had poisoned him. Nzinga became queen in 1623 and went into action at once. Her first major move was to send an ultimatum to the Portuguese authorities, demanding the immediate execution of the terms of the treaty. Otherwise, war would be declared. While the Portuguese were preparing to meet the Queen's armies, the Dutch were appearing as a new threat. The Dutch did not come as liberators of the Ndongo people. Their aim was to break the Portuguese monopoly and secure their share of the slave trade and the mineral wealth of West and Central Africa. There was no time to form an alliance with Pedro 
the second king of Congo in his war with the Portuguese. The Dutch had already captured seven Portuguese slave ships, sunk other vessels in the harbors at Luanda and Impined, and raised a lot of hell in general. All of this gave Queen Nzinga more time to prepare for the inevitable. She even reversed her demands for a Portuguese war against the Jaga and formed a military alliance with them instead. Knowing how unreliable the Jaga were, she sought to make the alliance binding by promising to marry the Jaga chief, Kasanji, and adopting certain desirable Jaga customs. Nzinga's greatest act that makes her one of the greatest women in history was in 1624 when she declared our territory in Angola over which she had control as free country, all slaves reaching it from whatever quarter were forever free. She went even further. Since it was clear to her that white power in Africa rested squarely on the use of black troops against black people, she understood the first and only carefully organized effort to undermine and destroy the effective employment and use of black soldiers by whites. The first and only black leader in history who was ever known to undertake such a task. She had carefully selected groups of her own soldiers to infiltrate the Portuguese black armies. First, separating and spreading out individually into Portuguese-held territory and allowing themselves to be induced by Portuguese recruiting agents to join their forces. The quiet and effective work of Nzinga's agents among the black troops of Portugal was one of the most glorious yet unsung pages in African history. For whole companies rebelled and deserted to the colors of the black queen, taking with them the much-needed guns and ammunition which she had been unable to secure, except by swiftly moving surprise attacks on enemy units. The Queen's armies were further strengthened by the runaway slaves who streamed into the only certain haven for the free on the whole continent of Africa. To the Portuguese, Queen Nzinga had passed the last word in unheard of audacity when she was able to influence scores of vassal chiefs to rebel against them and join the cause of their own race. To the Portuguese, this was too much. This woman had to be destroyed. The Portuguese sent their ultimatum to the queen from their Luanda stronghold, Portugal's Lisbon in Africa. The ultimatum demanded the immediate return of all chiefs, soldiers, and slaves to Portuguese territory. Refusal would mean war, the ultimatum concluded. The fact was that a state of war already existed since the queen's own ultimatum of the previous year. The Portuguese were afraid to move against her then, and they were even more afraid to move against her stronger forces now although they continued to give the Dutch threat as the reason for delaying the required all-out attack. Meanwhile, the usual strategy of first instigating factional strife among the blacks was by no means forgotten. It was just that there was so much unity and patriotism in this dominant Angola state, so much fanatical devotion to this terrible black queen, that eternal subversion was almost impossible. They tried to overcome all this 
by formally declaring that Nzinga was not legally queen of Ndungo. The throne vacant and one of her own vassal chiefs, Adi Kiluanji, was declared king. The Portuguese marshaled all of their forces on land and sea to crush Nzinga before the Dutch struck again. But the queen herself opened the offensive, striking first at the Portuguese puppet king and his forces. The Portuguese captured her principal island stronghold in the Kuanza River in July 1626, thus dividing her forces and by a swift encircling movement designed to capture the queen, cut off her main supporting regiments and forced her not only to retreat, but to withdraw from her country. Joy reigned in Luanda Salton. With Nzinga's flight from Angola, it appeared that the black menace was over and victory complete. Adi Kilwanji was crowned King Philip I of Ndongo. The solidarity of the blacks remained unbroken, however, and their loyalty to Nzinga remained steadfast. She was just away a little while and would soon return. Any child in the most distant bush could tell you that their queen was just the way on business. So who was this Philip? His name said he was a Portuguese, so he couldn't be king of Ndongo. All Angolan kings and queens were so African that they couldn't be tricked out of their own African names. The queen herself had dropped Anne from her name when she discovered that baptizing a black into Christianity meant surrendering their soul and body, not to Christ, but to the white man. Oral tradition further has it that the people not only rejected Philip I, but made fun of the very idea that he considered himself to be king. Understand their blind faith in their queen and the certainty of her return, according to the oral record, was not really so blind. Those who understood the coded drum messages spread the news that all guerrilla attacks which occurred throughout the land were attacks which were personally directed by the queen and that, in fact, she was raising a new army of liberation. Her loyal chiefs and people in the Dungo were to stand by ready. In November of 1627, she crossed the borders back into her country at the head of a strong army made stronger and stronger as her loyal chiefs and wildly cheering people, including her devoted free men, flocked to her standards as she swept forward to recapture the Kwanzaa stronghold held by Philip I and put him to flight. The Portuguese continued to be amazed at this display of black unity and under a woman's leadership at that. Black unity was now seen clearly as black power and that meant an unconquerable people. The Portuguese were resolved to break their unity and the power they developed from it. The revolt against them had become general as Nzinga's victorious forces advanced. The Portuguese retreated to their own strongholds on the coast, giving the Dutch threat as an excuse and not the threat of being annihilated by the Queen's forces. But as there was, in fact, no imminent Dutch threat, the Portuguese regrouped and strengthened their forces for an all-out war to destroy Nzinga, and this time, not to cease fighting until this was done. They began by giving orders and offering a big reward for her capture. 
dead or alive. Their slave troops, still the backbone of the Portuguese armed forces, were given the special inducements of land and freedom for her capture. Realizing that such an all-out attempt to capture her meant that countless thousands of her people would die in her defense, she outwitted the Portuguese again by slipping out of the country, instructing her lieutenants to spread the word everywhere that she had fled the country and mistakenly entering the territory of an enemy had been killed. There was a general weeping and mourning throughout Ndongo, Real weeping and mourning because the masses believed the story to be true. So did the Portuguese. The only reason for the war having been removed by Providence, the bishop could celebrate a special mass in celebration of this special blessing. And the colony of Angola could at last be organized after over 50 years of obstruction. All things now seem to be happy and going according to the original grand design. Then in 1629, the Portuguese were aghast and horrified when Queen Nzinga burst upon them from the grave, sweeping all opposition before her. She brought in her fierce Jaga allies, apparently willing to do even this to defeat the Portuguese. The Portuguese were completely defeated. She had not only retaken her own country, but had meanwhile became queen of Matamba, also having replaced the weak queen there. Now, Nzinga was the empress of two countries. She had redoubled her campaign against slavery and the slave trade by making both Nadungo and Matamba havens for all who could escape from the slaver by rebelling or otherwise. Chiefs engaged in the traffic in nearby states now stand in fear of her wrath. The Portuguese saw the handwriting on the wall. In order not to lose every foothold in the area, Lisbon suddenly remembered that it had never carried out the treaty signed with Nzinga in 1622 and declared that Portugal's war against her had been unjust. High-level embassies were sent to the Queen in 1639 in efforts to effect a settlement. Nzinga received them, listened to the protestations of eternal friendship, and went ahead with determination in reorganizing both of the kingdoms and undermining colonial rule in areas held by the enemy. That every white man in Africa was an enemy of the blacks was a matter about which there was no room for debate in her mind. Even the holy robes of the priests in Angola not only covered their real mission as agents of empire, but also covered their insatiable lust for the black bodies of their helpless slave girls. She had been forced by the actualities of black and white relations to distrust all whites along with their tricky treaties. By 1641, the Dutch had made great progress in reducing the power of Portugal all along the coast, and the Zynga's adamant position made their situation an impossible one to maintain. A despairing governor and council had no choice but to declare war against her once again, a full-scale war. But the situation was now most favorable for the Angolans. The northern neighbor, 
Congo had become more active in its own war against the Portuguese. And besides, a new and greater king had assumed the leadership. This was Garcia III, who continued the policy of cooperating with the Dutch where and when Congolese interests were involved. Some black leaders had learned to use the whites as the whites always used them when it served for their own interests. The other happy development from the Dongo was that the Dutch invasion of Portuguese-held areas had actually began in 1641 before any moves could be made against either of the two black states, Congo and the Dongo. Nzinga continued her campaign against the Portuguese, winning victories everywhere a battle was joined. With Dutch aid, the great Portuguese stronghold of Masangano fell in 1641. The Dutch, having previously captured Luanda, found themselves threatened by the steady reinforcements that continued to pour in from Portuguese Brazil. The Dutch withdrew, leaving the blacks in the area, who had helped them capture and defend this, the most important Portuguese city in Africa, to fend for themselves alone. While the chiefs and their forces did indeed put up a gallant fight, they were massacred in one of the most savage onslaughts on record. The recapture of Luanda by Salvador de Sá, the new governor, and his crushing of black opposition there led him to initiate new peace efforts with the two kingdoms of Congo and Nzinga. The Congolese king refused to answer his letter, but did send a monk to hear the governor's terms. Nzinga also agreed to efforts and negotiations. These gestures by the two African leaders led Salvador de Sá to advise the king of Portugal that all the African states were cowed and their power broken. He knew better, of course, for even the chiefs and their people in his own Portuguese-held territory were still fighting on despite the massacres and probably because of them. If the Portuguese had been able to conquer either Congo or Ndongo, Matamba, no peace offer would have been made. Hadn't they tried it over and over and failed? To be able to conquer both now was out of the question. Again, the old conquest routine was invoked. Beguiling smiles and protestations of friendship. Finding concrete expression in negotiation for peace. The language of diplomacy reached its most brilliant heights of deception in those velvety clauses of proposed treaties, which the Africans, if they signed them, would be signing themselves and their people into perpetual bondage. This fact was supposed to be assured by the other fact that the relevant clauses were so ambiguous that they could be interpreted in several different ways, in this case, in whatever way the Portuguese chose to interpret them. The very same provisions of the treaties could be read and explained to the blacks in such language that it would appear that the Europeans were not only humbling themselves, but also proclaiming the outcome as a glorious victory for the Africans. Of course, no black person, and not even the Zynga, was supposed to be sharply intelligent enough to see through all of this. But stripping away all the glitter verbiage, the Zynga saw at a glance that what it all meant was that she was to be a vassal of the Portuguese king, one paying him a big annual tribute. She would die first. And no one knew this better than the Portuguese, 
who at the time of this latest treaty offer had been at war with her and repeatedly defeated for over 28 years. They had met one of the giants of the human race who had found impossible to recognize as such because she appeared on the planet not only as a woman, but as a woman with black skin. Nzinga therefore kept them anxiously waiting for action on the treaty, toying with it for six years while giving her war-torn land and tired-out people a period of rest and recovery. She was a same queen who had twice fled the country, not to save herself, but save her people from a slaughter that her flight would prevent. For the same reason, she did not want the war resumed again after over 40 years of warfare. On the other hand, she would not surrender her country to Portugal and its slave trade. The areas of Angola they still held, including the important islands of Luanda and Sao Tome, belonged to the Angolan people, as some of these areas belonged directly to her kingdoms of Ndongo and Matamba. Finally, in 1656, tired and weary from four decades of relentless struggles, she signed a treaty that was revised and made acceptable to her. Her greatest concession allowed the Portuguese puppet king Adi to heed the territory conceded to them. There were seven more years of a busy life for Queen Nzinga, pushing reconstruction, the resettlement of ex-slaves, and undertaking the development of an economy of free men and women that would be able to succeed without the slave trade. She could not have been unaware that with the Portuguese still strongly entrenched in the most strategic areas, unless she was succeeded by equally great leaders, all of her labors in defense of the freedom of the blacks would ultimately be in vain. In October of 1663, Nzinga fell ill with infection in her throat and became bedridden. By December, the infection had spread to her lungs and Nzinga died in her sleep on the morning of December 17, 1663. As a dull autumn sun lengthened the shadows over the palace grounds where thousands stood in tears. Were there any more Garcias anywhere? Would God send them another Nzinga to hold the line against the truly white devils? The sun slowly went down behind the Angolan trees and darkness spread over the land. 300 years later, the blacks of Angola were still fighting the Portuguese and still waiting for the sunrise. In the heart-torn state of national mourning, the Queen's Council permitted two priests to come in and perform the last rites of the church. Since the queen had renounced the Catholic religion many years before her passing and had banned missions from her country as centers of subversions, this appearance of priests at the royal bedside may be explained either as a once a Catholic, always a Catholic theory or as an attempt by Catholic Portugal to give the appearance of final victory on all fronts. In this case, it would mean that the most unconquerable of foes recanting and submissive, had been conquered by their religion in the end. And so it is written in the official documents of Portugal, the written record used by almost all historians of Africa, 
that Nzinga had returned to the church that had baptized her Anne. Yet she was one of the very first blacks to see that the Portuguese conquest, the slave trade, and the church were all inseparable, one and the same. The long years of warfare had been equally against all three, the unholy trinity, and she had never surrendered. On November 11, 1975, 312 years later, her country and her people will finally achieve the independence that she spent majority of her life fighting for. We do it for the people, yes, black and opinionated. Black knowledge, black truth, all black everything. We don't just ride the wave, we all black every day. Day, day, we all black every day. We all black every day. Black knowledge, black truth, all black everything. We don't just ride the wave, we all black every day. Day, day, we all black every day. We all black every day.